Hebrews chapter 11 is an exposition on faith. It has 40 verses and faith is discussed directly at the beginning of the chapter and we, we look at uh, faith in the abstract and discuss things such as assurance and hope. Uh, as we, we see those verses in, or those words in verse 1. After the concept of faith is introduced, we then are given examples of models of faith. These examples are referred to in verse 2 as the elders. And these elders are listed. They include Abel and Enoch, Moses, Abraham, Sarah, many others, uh, even a reference to the widow of Zarephath. This is a very effective way of teaching about faith. So let's start in verse 1, and we'll discuss faith, faith first in the abstract. Verse 1 has maybe the, the, the greatest definition of faith in the abstract uh, in all of the scriptures. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The Joseph Smith translation replaces the word substance with assurance. Here's a remarkable uh, piece of commentary by Elder David A. Bednar that uh, comes from a 2006 publication called An Evening with Elder David A. Bednar, where he expands on the idea and, and the interplay between faith and assurance and hope. And notice again that in verse 1 with the Joseph Smith translation, uh, those words all appear. So does evidence, of course, in that verse. So our task here as we uh, go through this commentary by Elder Bednar is to consider the distinction between faith, hope, assurance, and also action. The Apostle Paul, as Elder Bednar says, defined faith as the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Alma declared that faith is not a perfect knowledge. Rather, if we have faith, we hope for things which are not seen but are true. Additionally, we learn in the lectures on faith that faith is the first principle in revealed religion and the foundation of all righteousness, and that it is also the principle of action in all intelligent beings. Okay, so those are three sources that Elder Bednar pulls from to define faith. It's Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's Alma 32.21, and it's this passage in the Lectures on Faith. Elder Bednar goes on to say, These teachings of Paul and of Alma, and from the Lectures on Faith, highlight three basic elements of faith. One, faith as the assurance of things hoped for which are true. Two, faith as the evidence of things not seen. And three, faith as the principle of action in all intelligent beings. I describe, says Elder Bednar, these three components of faith in the Savior as simultaneously facing the future, looking to the past, 
and initiating action in the present. So he's saying as you, as you look at faith across time or across tenses, it has application to the past, present, and uh, future. Then he says, faith as the assurance of things hoped for looks to the future. And where does he get that phrase, faith as the assurance of things hoped for? Well, it's in verse 1, the JST version. Faith as the assurance of things hoped for. Faith in Christ is inextricably tied to and results in hope in Christ for our redemption and exaltation. So there's the relationship to faith and hope. And assurance and hope, says Elder Bednar, make it possible for us to walk to the edge of the light and take a few steps into the darkness, expecting and trusting the light to move and illuminate the way. And uh, he's pulling that from an article by Boyd K. Packer, uh, which was um, something that uh, I think, I don't know if missionaries t today uh, still read the article, The Candle of the Lord. It, um, I think, was a, a mission president's conference, but did appear in the January 1983 Enzyme as well. But this, um, this article by Elder Packer is one worth seeking out. It's... Uh, it's um, foundational to, to my understanding of, of matters of faith and matters of uh, spiritual communication, for sure. Then Elder Bednar says something very thought-provoking. Quote, the combination of assurance and hope initiates action in the present. He goes on to say, faith as the evidence of things not seen looks to the past and confirms our trust in God and our confidence in the truthfulness of things not seen. We stepped into the darkness with assurance and hope, and we received evidence and confirmation as the light in fact moved and provided the illumination we needed. The light in fact moved and provided the illumination we needed. I think we can all relate with this. Then he says, the witness we obtained after the trial of our faith, which is quoting Ether 12.6, is evidence that enlarges and strengthens our assurance. He ends this by saying, assurance, action, and evidence influence each other in an ongoing process. There, there's a lot to think about in that, and uh, that's why I also provide the, the reference. It's, again, it's an evening with Elder David A. Bednar, February 3rd, 2006. It's called Seek Learning by Faith. I'm not sure how that is found, although uh, you can find it in the Institute Manual. Uh, moving on to verse 2. For by it, meaning by faith, the elders, meaning those great characters who have gone before, obtained a good report. All right. So we're going to talk about one more. Uh, we're going to talk about faith directly one more time before moving in to these elders, these foundational characters that were so important to the Hebrews. Uh, I want to add, by the way, in doing that, that Paul is building up a, a foundation, a case for the proper foundation of Judaism. Uh, these are the particular characters that he highlights um, 
interestingly, no one from the era of the kings. Uh, no Saul, no David, no Solomon. Um, but I'll come back to that point in a little while. Uh, verse 3, through faith we understand that the worlds, plural, remember how Hebrews uh, chapter 1 verse 2 says, by whom also he made the worlds, plural, were framed by the word of God. That's an amazing phrase. We're framed by the word of God. Uh, we've talked a lot about the power of the word. Uh, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Uh, I'm going to come back to that last phrase. Things which are sane, seen were not made of things which do appear. But I first want to go to some commentary about the world's being framed through faith. Uh, here, here is a statement that's found in the lectures on faith. The principle of power which existed in the bosom of God by which the worlds were framed was faith, and that it is by reason of this principle of power existing in the deity that all created things exist, so that all things in heaven, on earth, or under earth, exist by reason of faith as it existed in him. Had it not been for the principle of faith, the worlds would never have been framed, neither would man have been formed of the dust. It is the principle by which Jehovah works and through which he exercises power over all temporal as well as eternal things. That again is from the lectures on faith. This statement by Joseph B. Worthlin is especially thought-provoking as we consider what faith could and should mean to us in our lives. Truly, he says, truly understood, he says, and properly practiced, faith is one of the grand and glorious powers of eternity. It is a force powerful beyond our comprehension. Through faith, the worlds were framed by the word of God. Through faith, waters are parted, the sick are healed, the wicked silenced, and salvation made possible. Then he says, our faith is the foundation upon which all our spiritual lives rest. It should be the most important resource of our lives. The most important resource of our lives, says Elder Worthlin. Coming back now to verse 3, to this final phrase, I, I like it better, and I hope it's not wrong to render it this way, but by switching uh, things which are seen with things do appear, so that it reads like this. Things which do appear were not made of things which are seen. Uh, it kind of works either way, but when we think about how it is that things do appear in our lives, uh, that, they are, that they are materialized, that outcomes that we desire uh, materialize, I think we're being taught here that those things uh, come about through faith, not necessarily by other things that have already materialized. Uh, there is there's a, a, a great piece of insight that comes with that. So the things which we see, and there are, are, are 
innumerable examples of that, they are born of faith, not by other things you see. Uh, I'll go to some commentary about that, but I, I, it makes me think about the chicken and the egg argument, you know, because you have two temporal objects, two temporal outcomes, and we're asking which one caused the other. <laughs> but if the writer of Hebrews is to be believed, the real answer to what came first, the chicken or the egg, is faith. <laughs> now this statement by Elder Thomas S. Monson, or excuse me, President Thomas S. Monson, as he talks about how faith is the first thing that, that happens when we seek an outcome and that, that, that outcomes are born of faith, uh, goes like this. And this, this is a phrase that President Kimball, of course, used as well. Faith precedes the miracle. It has ever been so and shall ever be. It was not raining when Noah was commanded to build an ark. There was no visible ram in the thicket when Abraham prepared to sacrifice his son Isaac. Two heavenly personages, personages were not yet seen when Joseph knelt and prayed. First came the test of faith, and then the miracle. So I think all of that is implied in this phrase at the end of verse 3. Things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Uh, for me, it also calls to, to mind this curious phrase that we see over and over in the Book of Mormon, to the point that we wonder why it needs to be there. And in fact, I, I don't think all translations even render it. Uh, I, I think to read the Book of Mormon in Spanish, you, you don't encounter it over and over in quite the same way. But it's the phrase, and it came to pass. We, we read that over and over, that, that it came to pass in the Book of Mormon. Uh, there, there might even be a statement by Mark Twain that pokes fun of it, if I remember correctly. But you know, maybe that is to remind us that in our lives, outcomes that we seek do come to pass, and they come to pass through faith. Well, moving now into a description in verses uh, 4 through 40 of these specific elders who obtained a good report. So verse 4 teaches us about Abel. And this is the first time we see this phrase, which is, by faith, and then a proper noun. So by faith, Abel. Then we have by faith, Enoch, in verse 5. And we have by faith, Noah, in verse 7. And by faith, Abraham, verse 8. And through faith also Sarah in verse 11. So on and so forth. So we have this, this prepositional phrase that ends in this specific character. Okay, so by faith Abel, what can we learn from Abel? He offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Now we don't get a lot about Cain in the Bible. But we learn a little bit more about him from Joseph Smith and, and also, of course, about Abel and the nature of his sacrifice. After I read this um, piece of commentary from Joseph Smith, I want to talk for just a moment about why, why, the, why the, uh, what Cain did was so deplorable. 
uh, because it's it's not immediately apparent when you read the account. All right, and and some people talk about Cain being a a farmer and Abel being a hunter, and they both uh, gave what it was that they had. So what what was so wrong with Cain's offering? Well, we'll come back to that. For now, let me read this commentary about Cain and Abel. By faith in this atonement or plan of redemption, and this is Joseph Smith speaking, Abel offered to God a sacrifice that was accepted, which was the firstlings of the flock. Cain offered of the fruit of the ground and was not accepted because he could not do it in faith. He could have no faith or could not exercise faith contrary to the plan of heaven. That's an interesting phrase that Joseph says. It, it, it would appear that Cain was trying to exercise faith in a different system because he says could not exercise faith contrary to the plan of heaven. It must be shedding the blood of the only begotten to atone for man, for this was the plan of redemption. And without the shedding of blood was no remission. And we have we learned about that in previous chapters, the importance of the shedding of blood. I believe that was Hebrews chapter 9. And as the sacrifice was instituted for a type by which man was to discern the great sacrifice which God had prepared, to offer a sacrifice contrary to that, no faith could be exercised, because redemption was not purchased in that way, nor the power of atonement instituted after that order. Consequently, Cain could have no faith. This is commentary that gives us insight into the sin of Cain and that the sin of Cain began uh, well before he murdered Abel. Uh, we're, we're not learning specifically more about Abel's faith in this. We're learning a little bit more about the other. Uh, but it's still critical insight. There's so much in the statement by Joseph Smith that helps us understand, again, what priesthood actually is as an order and also teaches us that Cain could have no faith, which is almost putting it kindly, because what's actually happening here is that Cain is mocking God. And whenever you see a punishment in the scriptures, that appears to be disproportionate to the crime. There, there is a, as a curse that's levied towards Ham, for example. Uh, the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, and there are curses and punishments levied towards others throughout the scriptures that sometimes seem disproportionate, again, to the crime. Cain offered something from the ground, and he that, that was met with the Lord's ire. Well, whenever you see that sort of thing happening in the scriptures, I believe that's because God will not be mocked, and his sacred ordinances, which are a type of the sacrifice of the Son of God and his sacred priesthood order, is something not to be tampered with. And I think that's one of the messages we're to take from that. And another example would be the Tower of Babel. Exactly why was there such a severe punishment for a people that simply wanted to build a tall tower uh, so that it reached the heavens? Could it be that they were punished in such a way because it was not the physical height of the structure so much as it was the idea that there could be 
a man-made or man-derived <coughs> or counterfeit order that would allow people to reach heaven. So there's a little bit about faith and uh, uh, a little bit about Abel, I should say. Now, uh, we learn about Enoch in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. There's almost some humor in that phrase. But before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. And now we learn another concept about faith in the abstract. And it says, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Here's another statement out of the lectures on faith. Three things are necessary in order that any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. First, the idea that he actually exists. Secondly, a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. Thirdly, an actual knowledge that the course of life which he is pursuing is according to his will. Okay, we're going to move on to some other characters now. We're going to talk about Noah for a moment. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. And in this case, it's not the fear that's antithetical to faith. It's the fear of God and the understanding that he is commanding him to do something that requires faith. Prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by the faith. Now we settle in on Abraham from verses 8 all the way to verses 19. Although in the middle of that exposition, there is reference to the faith of Sarah. So I'm going to go to that first, actually, which is in verse 11. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised now, we, we learn in the actual account that Sarah laughs, and, uh, and then there's a retort to that, which is, is anything too hard for the Lord. Uh, but Sarah, in this verse, is given credit that the reason that she conceived seed was because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, I believe that's a very interesting way of framing faith or of, or of describing faith. It's because she judged him faithful who had promised. That, that is an example of faith in Jesus Christ and in the character of Christ. It's coming back to that lectures on faith definition, uh, which is the second definition, a, a correct idea of his character, perfections and attributes. Sarah trusted in that and believed in that, and as a result, his power was able to work in her but his power was only able to work in her when she actuated it through faith. And there is the principle, and there are many examples of that uh, in the New Testament. One of my favorite is the woman who reaches out to touch the hem of the Savior's garment. That is the actuating event, the triggering event, that opens the floodgates to his power. And that is the pattern in our own lives. Now we go back and talk about Abraham, again from verses 8 through 19. 
By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. <clears throat> for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I want to focus on this for just a moment. Uh, this idea that Abraham was looking, that, that he was a stranger in his own country and is looking for some, something greater, and a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Uh, he, here's something worth reading. Uh, Abraham had left his homeland in Ur with faith, not knowing where the Lord was taking him and his family. He and his son and his grandson had lived out their lives um, in a strange country, but Abraham knew that he was ultimately seeking to join a city whose builder and maker is God, the celestial city of Zion, also called the city of Enoch or the city of God. The prophet Melchizedek had also gone to this city with his people. So this is a, a, as a pattern, a scriptural pattern, of the faithful going into a strange land, going into a pattern of isolation and a pattern of exile, and ultimately returning back to a promised land, uh, either in this life or the next. And during the times when they did uh, enter a promised land, such as Lehi and his family, and Joshua when he brought the Israelites back into Canaan, uh, that still, that doesn't happen for all of the characters in Scripture that we read of. Uh, sometimes that promised land and that rest of the Lord um, it doesn't occur until after this life. And, and many of these characters that um, are described in Hebrews uh, don't receive their ultimate, uh, an ultimate resolution to their story until after they've died. Uh, that's certainly true of Isaiah, who's mentioned later, and who by legend, at least, was sawn asunder. And uh, also Abinadi is a, is a striking example of that uh, because of the suffering that he was called to pass through. As we apply this concept more broadly, we come to a very beautiful verse uh, in verse 13, uh, which is a real favorite of mine, which says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Think again in an emotional way, if you will, about Abinadi and the incredible influence he had upon Alma and then the incredible influence that Alma had upon all the people who were within his charge. This is because of Abinadi's dying in faith, not having received the promises. And, and what this means in this case is the promises in mortality. And it would be handy if it said, not having received the promises in mortality. So it's okay, I think, to read it that way. So going back to verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises in mortality, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Back to this phrase, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them. I'm struck by that because that seems to be our task. Um, 
is to see uh, these promises far off and to be persuaded by them enough, as Elder Bednar and Elder Packer said, to take a step into the darkness and then to discover that the light has moved and uh, your, your way was lighted. Uh, it reminds me of uh, th these, these beautiful uh, words in the hymn, Lead Kindly Light, where it says, Keep thou my feet. So you determine my steps. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step, enough for me. The references that are provided at the end of that hymn in um, Psalm, uh, Psalms 43 and uh, also 119 are, are really worth looking at. Uh, then we read this very, very beautiful phrase in verse 13 at the end, which says, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And that word has been used in, in verse and in song, or th th those words, strangers and pilgrims, have been used in verse and in song. I have always loved how Alma expands on this idea and want to read those verses very quickly in Alma 13. And this is in Alma 13, verses 23 through 25, and they're worth considering in this particular context. He says, referring to the plan of redemption and the order of the Melchizedek priesthood, really, uh, because we're in Alma 13 here, and the way in which it was instituted before the foundations of the world. Uh, with reference to those things, he says in verse 23, and they are made known unto us in plain terms that we may understand that we cannot err, and this because of our being wanderers in a strange land. So because we're wanderers in a strange land, like Abraham was, we need to have these things shown to us in plain terms, and then we need to latch on to them in faith. Alma continues by saying, Therefore we are thus highly favored, for we have these glad tidings declared unto us, in all parts of our vineyard. For behold, and this harkens back to Hebrews chapter 1 and the ministering of angels. For behold, says Alma, angels are declaring it unto many at this time in our land, and this is for the purpose of preparing the hearts of the children of men to receive his word at the time of his coming in his glory. And now we only wait to hear the joyful news declared unto us by the mouth of angels of his coming. For the time cometh, we know not how soon. Would to God that it might be in my day, but let it be sooner or later, in it I will rejoice. Well, Alma's talking specifically of the coming of the Savior in the meridian of time to the Nephites, which of course we know he did. Uh, it's quite amazing to me to see that Alma was looking at this, as Paul once said, through a glass darkly in Corinthians. It, even Alma, who may in the end have been translated, had an opaque view of when it is that the Christ would come in the meridian of time. So that's kind of a side point, but one that's still of great interest. And uh, I think that this verse 13 in Hebrews 11 uh, is full of, of beauty and, and meaning. We, we go on to talk about a country 
Uh, so we're still working on this metaphor of a strange land or a strange country and how that there is such a thing in verse 16 as a better country that is an heavenly. And uh, that's the, the metaphor. I like this next part. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Uh, this word ashamed can be a little bit confusing because it almost would seem to apply that God, that there's some element to his character that would be um, prone to guilt or even the fear of man because that's kind of what we as associate with being ashamed. But in this case, really, you, you can equate ashamed with hidden, with being hidden. It has to do with God's being hidden to us. And when we get to that better country that is heavenly, God is no longer hidden to us. So that's what's being said in verse 16. We speak just a little bit more about Abraham, and this is um, a most uh, important point, and it's appropriate, of course, for this chapter in Hebrews to focus so much on he Abraham when uh, we know who his audience was. It reads, By faith Abraham, in verse 17, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and that he had received the promises of his, uh, the promises offered up his only begotten son. Uh, to go back, I want to emphasize the words in a different way. And he that had received the promises, so Abraham had received the promises and had the hope of the promises of this heavenly country, offered up his only begotten son. Of course, Isaac in this story is a type of Jesus Christ and and is actually being referred to by the same name title, but it's not capitalized here. This is Isaac that's being referred to when it says only begotten son. He's a type. Jacob uh, chapter 4 verse 5 is worth reading here. It says very clearly that um, Isaac is a type of Jesus Christ. Speaking of that uh, for just a moment, Look at verse 18. So the end of 17 says, Isaac, verse 18, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Can you see the cruel and confusing irony in this? We see that Abraham was offered endless posterity and that Isaac was the gateway through to that endless posterity. Yet in this instance, Abraham is being asked to sacrifice Isaac. Uh, this, is, this is the meaning of this, this episode. Uh, Isaac is the birthright son. He had covenanted with Abraham. The Lord had covenanted with Abraham, so this would have been terribly ironic and confusing. Here's some... Um, some commentary on that from Bruce R. McConkie, and then we'll move into some other elders of the past and uh, culminate in, in some final comments about faith. Brother McConkie says, Who can conceive of a more severe test of faith than the heaven-sent order to sacrifice the heir of promise, the heir whom God must then raise from the dead that his promises concerning Isaac might be fulfilled? Is it any wonder that in all succeeding generations the seed of Abraham have looked back with awe and reverence upon a scene which tested mortal man 
almost beyond mortal power to obey? Why would deity devise such a test? One, one reason, of course, is, as we're reading this, is that, is, that we, is that the type here is so strong of the Father's sacrifice of His only begotten Son. But then Elder McConkie says, uh, why did deity devise such a test? Certainly it was for Abraham's blessing and benefit. There can be no question that the harder the test, the higher the reward for passing it. And here Abraham laid his all on the altar, thus proving himself worthy of that exaltation which he has now received. And immediately following his conformity to the divine will, he received a heavenly manifestation of the glory and honor reserved for him and his seed. Certainly also Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac was intended to be an example forever of that perfect obedience which the Lord expects of all heirs of promise. This is an hard saying, <laughs> I would add. In a way, it's, 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 it's difficult even to read that story about Abraham and Isaac. And I think it is meant to be that way. Now we, we have shorter, um, uh, uh, shorter lines devoted to other characters. Verse 20, Isaac and Isaac's faith in blessing Jacob and Esau and Jacob and his faith and Joseph and his and uh, the, the incident of him saying where he wants to be buried is here. This is a, a short aside that deserves discussion at another time, but I've always found it quite amazing as you follow these great patriarchal figures. And of course, we have a matriarchal figure shown in verse 11 in Sarah. But this patriarchal succession that we see in the book of Genesis comes up to Joseph. He is the successor of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we don't say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But we could. Joseph held the same priesthood and most certainly was the successor. But very interestingly, the narrative of the Old Testament changes at this point. It's as though we're following this, this great trunk, this great tree trunk of patriarchs. And one builds upon the other from Adam up to Jacob. And when we get to Joseph at this point in Genesis, the main character of the Old Testament from this point to its very end changes from the patriarchs to the people. It changes to the, uh, the children of Joseph, the children of Israel in totality. And Joseph is somewhat marginalized and we don't continue on with his story specifically or with the story of his posterity, but instead he simply is one branch of that tree, but as we know from Genesis chapter 49, his branch is a covenant branch, and it's a fruitful bough because it is a covenant branch. And those branches extend beyond the wall and move into other nations, and there are records available to all mankind today that tell us about that branch, and that, of course, is the Book of Mormon, which by this point, according to President Ezra Taft Benson's vision, has indeed flooded the earth. Well, that was an aside. 
moving on to talk about Moses, Moses in verse 23. And you would expect that Hebrews talks the most about Abraham and about Moses, and that's true. There's, there are a few things to say about Moses that I want to cover. Verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. We'll come to that, back to that phrase in a second. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. I think this speaks volumes about Moses' character. I think he was a very unique figure in history. We would all agree with that just because we know that he did many remarkable things. But among those remarkable things is the way in which he was able to forfeit <laughs> what he had as an Egyptian. These uh, Egyptian treasures that he had access to were no small thing. And uh, there are other examples of people in Scripture, uh, Alma comes to mind, who, who step away from a, a ruling position, a ruling position, and assume an ecclesiastical position. And Moses is one of them. Uh, I, I've heard it said before that you could consider George Washington as one of those. Now, he didn't assume an ecclesiastical position, but it is fascinating that he had uh, he had the, the ability to become the king of, of what would become the most powerful nation on earth and forfeited that. I don't think there are very many people who live on the earth that have the ability and the character to forfeit such treasure in such circumstances. And as we learn here, Moses was one such character. This phrase, enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, is worth focusing on. And there's a quote by Dallin H. Oaks that says, Those who yield to the enticings of Satan may, as the scripture says, enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But that kind of pleasure can never lead to lasting happiness or eternal joy. And uh, then he says, Do not seek happiness in the glittering but shallow things of the world, or we could say the treasures of Egypt. We cannot achieve lasting happiness by pursuing the wrong things. All right, I, I love this verse 27 so much because it reminds me of the phrase, the eye of faith, uh, uh, something I've referenced previously in, in these Hebrew chapters, a statement by Alma, who said to look forward with an eye of faith. And um, it says that by faith Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, uh, which again is just incredible. Then it says, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Seeing who who is invisible? Well, God, seeing God, seeing this heavenly city that awaited, seeing the treasures of this heavenly kingdom that awaited, looking forward to the promise, as the book says. So seeing him, as who, seeing him who is invisible requires an eye of faith. You can't see him who is invisible with mortal eyes, but you can with an eye of faith. The imagery there is just beautiful. Then, of course, we recount how Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea as by dry land. 
The Egyptians who were saying to do that or who tried to do that were drowned. We move to Joshua now because Moses is not the one who took these Israelites into Canaan. And uh, by his faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Then we learn, interestingly, about the harlot Rahab. Uh, and Rahab, if I remember correctly, was a Moabitess who was willing to conspire with spies who moved into Moab to see how best uh, that Joshua could lead his people in and, and avoid, um, avoid ruin once they crossed the Jordan and, and re-inhabited the land of Canaan. So she was a pivotal figure. Then um, the, the, the momentum increases. We've talked about all of these patriarchs, and uh, now we're to Joshua. We've talked about Rahab. And at this point, the author of Hebrews simply says in verse 32, What more shall I say? As if to say, there are so many more examples that I could cite here. And then cite several examples from the book of Judges, characters from the book of Judges. For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, and, of, and then of David, and also Samuel, and of the prophets. Uh, he, this is the only reference to David that we get. And uh, he doesn't say anything about, else about this period of kings, and that's something I wanted to come back to. If we, if we really look at who Paul's examples of faith are here, uh, here's who we've gone through so far. Abel, Enoch. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab. And then in a moment here, we'll talk about Daniel and his companions. And uh, they're not named, though. And then there are indirect references to a couple other characters as well. Uh, I find it interesting that these are the examples that are chosen as the, the foundation of faith for the Hebrews because at this time in their history they were all about David. They were the city of David, David. They were the people of David. It was under David's rule that they were a military power, that they were a formidable presence in the Middle East. It's during that time when they were a cohesive unit. Uh, they looked to David and interestingly Paul or the author of Hebrews here is telling the Hebrews to look to these other patriarchal and, of course, matriarchal figures in Hebrew history. He's directing the readers to other foundational characters, and uh, when he does that, they point more directly to Jesus Christ. Well, that would be a, a good ending point for this chapter, but let me read this out, and, and uh, we'll note a couple more um, scriptural examples that are given here. Verse 33, who through faith, so these other people where Paul says, what more can I say? There are so many. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Well, the subdued, the subdued kingdoms part could certainly be David. The wrought righteousness part could certainly be Samuel, which he lists. <coughs> who stopped the mouths of lions? Well, we know that that was Daniel, and then Daniel's um, companions are mentioned in verse 34, quenched the violence of fire. Interestingly, we, we refer to these companions of Daniel as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, yet we refer to Daniel as Daniel. That's curious because Daniel is the Hebrew word, uh, 
his, his Babylonian uh, pseudonym that was given to him by the chief of the eunuchs was Belteshazzar. Uh, yet Daniel's companions, we do refer to them by their Babylonian pseudonyms, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because the truth is these characters were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. <laughs> Just kind of an interesting aside. Uh, it's interesting to me also that in verse 32 it says that out of weakness these characters were made strong. There is a notion and a principle that Moroni teaches with such great clarity as he is making editorial comments on those Jaredite plates and discussing the, the, the ministry of Ether himself and uh, then makes that editorial aside and teaches us about faith uh, very in, a, in a similar way to what the author of Hebrews is doing here uh, with this particular chapter, going into an exposition on faith and uh, describing specific characters. Well, we can't not <coughs> read verse 35. Women receive their dead <coughs> raised to life again. Who is that? Well, that is the widow of Zarephath. There's no question about who that is. And I, I want to read her story very quickly. Um, this is 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, verses 17 through 23. If we are to learn about faith, the story of the widow of Zarephath is, is not to be passed over for sure. So here it is, or at least here is the, the end of the story. Uh, 17 through 23, 1 Kings 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, so the widow had a son, the mistress of the house, he fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. What a, what a poetic and humble way of describing his demise, his death. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O man, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? That's quite a thing to say. I'll come back to that in a moment. Then she said, and, and he said unto her, Give me thy son. And uh, Elijah took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. Uh, so, of course, uh, Elijah was staying with the widow at this time, so he, he takes this this dead son up to his quarters. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon this widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? So you can imagine Elijah's, uh, his faith is being tried as well here. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into me again, come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. There's so much happening here that we could talk about. Well, for one thing, we could talk about the, the union of the soul and the body as a composite, and, and how that is the definition of death, is when the soul leaves the body. But this thing that um, the widow says to Elijah, when, when she, uh, it's a, it sounds accusatory, when she says, how could you bring this evil upon me and uh, slay my son, is how she puts it in verse 20. Really, this is a plea for help more than a criticism, and it's important to know that. And, and in essence, she's saying, 
I thought that sheltering a prophet would bring blessings and protection, but instead tragedy has struck my home. Uh, I believe that's a re-rendering of that verse, which is which is helpful. I I love that we, at least almost, end with this uh, example of the widow of Zarephath because the thing that her faith resulted in, and of course Elijah's, is the renewing of life. It is the dead being raised. That in this example is what faith yielded. And that of course is what our faith can yield ultimately um, as we exercise it. Verse 36, And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. We can think of many people that could fit that description in the Book of Mormon as well. And they were stoned, and we could think of many that fit that. And, of, of course, Paul witnessed and was party to the stoning of Stephen. Uh, we're talking to the Hebrews here, so he's probably not alluding to Stephen. But then he says they were sawn asunder. Well, that's probably reference to Isaiah, who legend has it was was sawn asunder. Um, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. This this the stature that. Elijah and Elisha enjoy today as great prophets when we look back upon them. Well, that's how life was for them from day to day, even though they're so great in our eyes. They wandered about, and like, like Abraham and like all of us, in a strange land, in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Surely Joseph Smith felt that way so often. But it says in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. And we could say immortality. Received not the promise of mortality. But, in verse 40, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. And that's how the chapter ends, talking about Isaiah. Isaiah is our last example that, that has, there's a direct re reference to him. I think it's beautiful that that's the case. And uh, then we talk more generally. We, we move away and we go to, to a, a, a lower resolution or higher altitude view of all of this, this parade of people. And of course, Moses was shown all of the inhabitants of earth in his vision. And Nephi was shown all the inhabitants of the earth in his vision. And we're being shown this, this, uh, this, this parade of people who, who uh, showed faith. And now we're looking at all of the inhabitants of the earth and the Lord's people, and especially looking at those in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy, who wandered in deserts and in mountains. And then we say, is that us? And could that be us as covenant keepers? It is us. We are wanderers in a strange land. And we too, as verse 39 says, can obtain that good report. And that uh, bundles things up because it's in verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 11 that says that there were elders who obtained a good report. Uh, but we too can receive that ultimate promise in that heavenly city and will be combined with our dead, as uh, we see in verse 40, 
and without uh, them, they will not be made perfect. And with without us, they will not be made perfect. Seems to be the implication there. And that's uh, one way of looking at Hebrews chapter 11.